This is Tony Roth, the Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust, and you are listening to Capital Considerations. Today we have a wonderful guest to talk about an interest that is very close to his heart and very close to my heart, which is art and art investing. Charlie Banta is a private equity investor specializing in media who has a deep background in both art and finance. He has an undergraduate degree from Yale in art history as well as an MBA from Harvard. He has a very deep storied background in the finance side of the world, but I think that his real passion is combining finance and art. Charlie has been a key member of the board of what is officially called the Buffalo Fine Arts Academy, but is more commonly known as the Albright Knox, a wonderful museum up in Buffalo, where he's been a board president and on the board for many, many years. And that institution was actually co-founded by his great-great-grandfather in 1862. He also has been on the board of the Portland Center for the Visual Arts, Palm Springs Art Museum, the National Council of the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, and the Whitney in New York. In full transparency, we want to let you all know that Charlie Banta is a client of Wilmington Trust. However, he's not here today to comment on us, but rather in his capacity as an art expert. And as always, I'd like to remind our listeners that nothing that we say should be construed as an investment recommendation or endorsement. Charlie, welcome. So exciting to have you today for this conversation. Thanks, Tony. It's always nice to talk to a fellow art collector. Everybody wants to understand why does art have inherent value? Art, of course, has some ability to provoke an aesthetic experience that creates value in and of itself. But when people ask me the question, I always go back to sort of the old laws of supply and demand, something that's very, very rare, maybe only one example of a particular object that is something that creates that kind of experience that many people appreciate. By definition, there's only one, and therefore it's valuable. What would you add to that answer? Today, we're not talking about aesthetic value of art. We're not talking about the intellectual value of art, which is all there, but we're talking about the financial value of art. Somebody obviously thinks it has value since it's an international multi-trillion dollar asset class. There's a lot of value out there. When you talk about the classic dynamics of supply and demand, when you look at the supply of important art, it's really a unique asset. When you think about Leonardo, Picasso, Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol, there's only one of those artists. And their artworks are unique. So there's only one Mona Lisa. There's only one De Miseau d'Avignon by Picasso, the first Cubist painting. There's only one Convergence, one of the famous drip paintings by Jackson Pollock. There's only one Campbell Soup Can painting by Andy Warhol. Actually, I think he made two, but they're still very unique and probably each worth over $100 million. And then, of course, when an important artist dies, all of a sudden the universe of their artwork is finite. It never grows after death. Then you look at the demand side. The valuations for art are driven by high net worth individuals, which is a great, great client base because they tend to be somewhat recession resistant. They tend to continue to buy art during downturns. Global wealth has been increasing dramatically over the last 30 years. So there's your dynamic that you referred to. You have a very limited supply of important artworks and you have an expanding demand metric buying the art with the high net worth individual buyer class. So the result of all that 
has been, if you look at the actual performance of arts, especially contemporary art, between 1995 and I think it's 2021, it's actually outperformed the S&P 500, compounded 14% versus 9% annually. In order to assess whether any particular piece of art would constitute a judicious investment as a financial asset, you have to delve deeper. You have to assess whether or not it is today or likely to be in the future broadly regarded with persistence as something that is important, something that is, in fact, beautiful, or something that is interesting. Can you talk to us more about that? I'm going to go back to my days as an art history major at Yale. One of the courses I took by a professor called George Kubler, who was really brilliant, his specialty was pre-Columbian, but he was really more than an art history professor. He was also a philosopher. And he wrote a book called The Shape of Time. He pointed out that time is normally measured with arbitrary metrics, like decades, centuries, reigns of kings, etc. And the way he measures time is by the emergence of new art forms. What he meant was art alters the sensibilities of mankind. Fra Angelico was one of the first important Renaissance painters. And in 1437, he painted a work called The Annunciation. This was the first example in the history of art of using Alberti's invention of one-point perspective to create more realistic three-dimensional space on a two-dimensional surface. It was a real transformation out of the Gothic and primitive abstraction into realistic three-dimensional spaces. So it was a very, very important moment of innovation in the art world, and therefore probably nobody could afford to buy Fra Angelico's The Annunciation these days. Picasso's Demis d'Avignon is another great example. The first time modern space was abstracted, it made you look at the world in a very, very different way. You look at Jackson Pollock's, one of the big drip paintings, Convergence, 1952. I mean, those drip paintings were revolutionary and unbelievably different way of looking at space, motion, and emotion. And then Andy Warhol's 100 Soup Cans, 1962, who would think of painting a soup can as a piece of art, but it completely transformed the world's view of what art was all about, and obviously it was the creation of pop art. All those are really great examples of art which alters the sensibility of mankind. When I personally buy art, I think about three things. Number one, I think about whether I like it aesthetically. I'm not going to hang a work of art in my home that I don't like. Number two, I do think about whether it is art which alters the sensibilities of mankind. And number three, as a result of that, I think about does this artist and does this work of art I'm buying have a chance for an important place in the art history books 50 to 100 years from now? Those are some of the things I think that really differentiates great art from ordinary art and also leads to investment opportunity. I have all these stories and experiences that I was able to build with each object I acquired. So I might have a couple hundred objects of art in my collection, maybe even more, but many of them are multiples. They're prints. I don't have as many unique pieces as I would like to have. And if I could do it over again, I would have had a different focus. What is someone to do? who's interested in art, maybe wants to hang something because they have an open space on their wall and they need to have something to look at. 
but doesn't have a sensibility to really help angle in on whether or not something is broadly considered to be as of aesthetic worth, much less likely to be in the canon of art history in 50 or 100 years. One of the most important things in buying art is to look at a lot of art. I go to a lot of art fairs. In order to identify what you think are good pieces of art, you have to look at a lot of bad art. New York City has probably the greatest concentration of commercial art dealers. You go down to Chelsea and you can visit 30 or 40 different galleries. If you get to know a dealer or two, the dealers can be very helpful in terms of educating you. There are also many art advisors out there if you want to go that route. Another thing I should mention is in addition to looking at art, it really helps to read a lot about it. How confident do you feel when you collect in a contemporary arena? I'm going to use the word primary issuance as opposed to secondary market. If you're going to go out and buy a Ellsworth Kelly or you're going to buy an artist like a Warhol or a Picasso, whether it be a print or a drawing, or if you're really well off, you can buy a painting, you pretty much know that it's going to be in the canon of art history because they've already been established. They may even be dead, etc. But contemporary art is much harder. How does one who's not really relying on advisors and gallerists, etc., to help focus... Because that's where the best opportunities must be from a wealth creation standpoint or a value creation standpoint. You're much more likely to find a young artist who is going to be in the canon in 50 years to turn into a lot of money than you are saying, oh, I'm going to buy a Picasso or a Monet that have already been well established and maybe the upside is a little bit more limited. Well, there's no question about the fact that you can create higher percentage returns by buying emerging contemporary art than buying established artists at auction or on the secondary market. It's just simple math. If you were to buy a really important Picasso painting today, you're probably going to have to spend 20 or $30 million, maybe more. I was fortunate enough to buy an artist early into his career called Mark Bradford, which, frankly, I don't know if he'll be as important as Picasso, but he's going to be very, very important. And I was able to buy it for you know relatively modest amount of money and let's say it was 2009 I bought that piece so 14 years later it's literally millions of dollars obviously the percentage return on something like that is significantly better than buying a Monet or a Picasso or a Basquiat or a Warhol the process of how you identify those emerging artists is kind of a little bit of what we talked about before you don't even have to be born with a good eye you can be an acquired taste, but you have to work at it a little bit. And how cyclical do you think the art market is for works by artists that have been recognized as established or important artists? Is it just one direction all the time? Or is it cyclical with the economy and with geopolitics? And there has been so much wealth created in the last 20 to 30 years. I remember a big crash in the art market in the 90s. But since that time, it seems like it's just been a one-way ratchet up. The valuations for important art is driven by high net worth individuals. During an economic downturn, the market isn't nearly as affected as most other asset classes. High net worth individuals can still afford to buy art during a recession. Art is really considered to be a non-correlated asset class. Look at another major downturn between 2007, 2010, the Great Recession, 
there were only two asset classes that actually increased in value during that period. One was gold and the other was art. Art is very much a store of value in the way gold is. Just think about World War II and all the great art that was in Europe during that unbelievable conflagration. And when it emerged, it did nothing but increase in value. It's a very, very solid asset class. Do you buy art exclusively from galleries or do you also buy art at auction? I've sold things at auction. I've never bought anything at auction. Um, I've really focused primarily on emerging contemporary artists. Early on, some of the artists I acquired were like Alexander Calder, Sam Francis, Richard Diebenkorn, Yayo Kasama, Richard Prince, Gerhard Richter, Robert Mangold, Mark Bradford. Those people are all pretty well-established artists right now. I wouldn't be buying their work today. But to give you an example of some of the works I bought more recently, and more in the emerging class, is... Mary Course, Amy Silman, MacArthur Binion, Julia Rommel. I mean, I could go down a much longer list. I've really tried to focus on emerging artists because, frankly, I find the intellectual process pretty interesting. Again, from a strict investment perspective, it's absolutely the best way to generate a return on your money if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, right at that stage in those artists' careers, they're really not showing up at auction whether you do primary market or secondary market kind of depends on number one what your aesthetic makeup is some people like art that's kind of been more proven aesthetically over time they're just more comfortable with it some people like to take more risks with more experimental works of art and then number two again the level of risk is what your financial level of risk is are you willing to put a lot more money into an artist in the secondary market because that makes you feel more comfortable with the value of the asset? Or are you willing to buy an emerging artist who may not be that expensive and may or may not emerge as somebody important, but if they do, it could be pretty significant. The thing that's interesting about collecting the real emerging artists is that the gallerists, art consultants, people like yourself figure out fairly quickly who meets the criteria that you rattled off earlier of being aesthetically compelling, different, doing it the right way, having a chance to grow and become a significant established artist. And consequently, it's very hard to get access through dealers to that kind of material. When a show happens, it's all that in advance. The dealers buy the best pieces for themselves, for the principal's collections. It's probably not a phenomenon that you've encountered a lot because you're such a well-known collector. But for folks that aren't, even if you're lucky enough to be able to identify what you want to maybe be buying, unless you're very, very early and very, very talented, it's very hard to get access to the materials and not. Unfortunately, the short answer to that is yes, you're correct. Getting access to the right artists at the right time early into the game is not something that somebody who's just starting out is going to be able to do. You've got to look at a lot of art. You've got to get to know the dealers. You have to start buying the work once you establish yourself as a collector who is actually willing to commit resources to the space. You get a little bit more attention. If you think about this year, what percentage of your productive energies will be involved in art in some way? Art was basically an important part of mankind's existence at the birth of civilization. 
and it will never end being so until the end of civilization. So it's never going to be superannuated. It's a great asset class from that perspective. So to answer your question is I'm basically spending virtually 100% of my time in the art space these days. Basically just continuing to build your collection, deaccession things that you think have run their course, either in terms of your own interest or appreciation. Is that what you're doing? I'm collecting and I'm also investing. Let's say that we have people that are listening today that want to get involved. They don't want to build their own collection. They just want to get some portfolio exposure. What should they do? Probably the easiest way to do that is through an art fund. There are many art funds out there created like private equity funds. Most of them are buying art on the secondary market because most of these funds are started by finance guys. Finance guys, you know, like to validate value in what they're buying. And the best way to validate value in the art world is through the auction markets, which means by necessity, you're investing in works in the secondary market. The Picassos, Monet's, Basquiat's, those are private equity vehicles, which you have to be an accredited investor. So you have to be something close to a high net worth individual. My team has looked at a lot of art funds and the vast majority of them focus on established artists. Our conclusion has been that it's hard to see the wealth creation that the world has seen in the last 30 years, Asian buyers, Middle Eastern buyers, Russian buyers, necessarily continuing whereby these underlying objects, these art investments, the Picassos, the Matisses that are going into these funds will continue to appreciate net of fees at the same kind of rate. So we've been very reluctant. Having said that, we have had interest in the contemporary space, but it's higher reward, higher risk. That's where we like to see our clients focus and we'd like to direct our clients over time. And so we'd love to hear anything that you might have to share with us or offer If we wanted to get people involved in the right areas of the emerging artist space, how might some of the investors or clients go about that on their own? I actually was approached by two very consequential figures in the art world to help them start an art fund. This fund is very, very different from the funds that we just talked about who were dealing with secondary market pieces. And I agree with you that Picasso's aren't going to grow at 50% a year, and they've already established a pretty good valuation track. They'll grow over time, but you're right that the returns will probably be in this maybe single digits over a long period of time. But this fund is focused exclusively on emerging contemporary artists. These two individuals, their entire careers have been spent in the art museum world and the commercial world doing exactly that, identifying emerging contemporary artists and ultimately help picking those who they think are really going to be the old masters of the future and developing their careers. I'm sure the finance people in the audience know what a hockey stick growth curve is. Those more traditional art funds working on the secondary market are buying works of art pretty far up on the shaft of the hockey stick. What we're doing with our art fund, to your original point, is we're buying at the inflection point of the hockey stick. Why do we think we'll be successful with that? Because, frankly, we have been for the last 40 years. And even though it may be deemed as higher risk, if one of the artworks you buy doesn't work out, it's a hell of a lot different than buying a $30 million Picasso and not having it work out. 
In some ways, I view the downside risk as actually less than the conventional art funds. So you guys get together, you'd say, okay, we're going to get this. And you do that for 50 pieces going to the fund. And then it turns out that you spend $50 million or $20 million, whatever the number is, and maybe you get one home run and the rest of them, eh. No, no, no. I don't think that's the way it will work out. This is not like a venture technology fund. I think the success ratio will be closer to 80%. We're not trying to create an advertisement for your fund here just for the audience. We're trying to just right. use this illustrative case. There's lots and lots of funds out there that fit this kind of profile. But Charlie, not necessarily with the aesthetic power that you guys bring. Tell me about the structure of the fund. Is it, again, only open to accredited investors? And does it have a lifetime or does it go on forever? And how do people get out of it? You do have to be an accredited investor. It's a classic private equity structure. It's seven years to invest, 10 years to uh, exit. But, you know, we frankly feel we'll be in and out of it much more quickly than that. We've already had a first closing. We've already acquired 14 artworks. On a mark-to-market basis right now, just based on dealer information and auction information, we could probably sell that immediate inventory for at least a 2x Two or three of the pieces are at a 3X and 4X already with less than a year into it. We have a pretty high level of confidence about what we're doing. And it's not an evergreen fund. So anything that's sold will be um, 100% returned to the investors. But the ultimate fund life is? 10-year life, 10 years from point zero. Okay. At the end of the fund, there's some great stuff in there that you, know, you guys don't want to part with. We're not buying this art to hang on our walls. We're using a lot of other people's money to make an investment. And the whole idea is to generate a return on the investment. Where does the art live? Mostly in professional storage. We'll lend to uh, museums to help the artist's career. Fascinating. In an earlier conversation we had, you brought up the issues of whether art's a liquid asset class or not. It's a multi-trillion dollar international asset class, but it's traded internationally in every major currency. It's a physical asset that can be easily transported and stored globally. It's a very lightly regulated business, which is good. Another interesting aspect of this is the individual collector can realize value on the art collection by establishing a credit line collateralized by the art. That's actually a pretty important point for the average collector. It's not a frozen asset necessarily. Yeah, and, and we do a lot of that at MT, of course. We'll do a, a full assessment on what we think. We'll bring in a third party if we need to. We'll figure out what the right loan to value is that we're comfortable with. I'm actually one of your clients. It's a terrific facility and it, and it just gives you tremendous financial flexibility. And it's just a great mechanism by which to realize current value in your art collection without having to sell it. What do you do when you have an object that you say, wow, that is terrific? You could say, well, I could buy it and put it in the fund, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to buy it myself because I think this is a great opportunity. I'm not going to give it to the fund. It seems like the three of you guys have a real conflict in deciding how to allocate those opportunities. I understand the potential concern, but it's just not going to happen. You want the art fund to be as successful as possible because you want to then do fund two, three, four, five, you know, et cetera. Well, it's just an interesting question. Allocation of opportunity is one that we confront when we look at any private market fund, particularly in context of a series of funds 
new opportunities that are going to go to the existing fund that's not fully deployed, et cetera, et cetera. We are out of time, but I think that the takeaway, in my mind, and there are a couple of them, I think, one is that the art space is really unique. And if you think about where we started with where does the value derive from, it's really about supply and demand of something that is broadly considered to be a unique object. You can look at things like multiples, you can look at things like wine, you can look at things like watches, but from a collectible standpoint, art is really truly unique in that there are very few other kinds of collectibles that are as broadly followed and indeed offer unique objects like art does. If you can get involved early in the value creation process for an artist, you can really do quite well in a non-correlated asset class. And it's something that I will need to trust. We'll continue to study. And if we have an opportunity to bring the right type of opportunities to our clients in the future, you'll be hearing more from us. Charlie, I'll just ask you if you have a last word that you want to share with our audience. Warren Buffett, people ask him all the time, what kind of business should I go into? What should I do with my life? And Buffett's response is do something that you love. I obviously am personally very passionate about the art world. Even for those who aren't right now, if you are willing to spend the time looking at the art and reading about the art and talking to dealers, et cetera, it could very well be something that they'll end up loving as well. I think that's a great piece of advice. And I want to really thank you, Charlie, on behalf of all of us for sharing what is just a fascinating journey that you've had in your life and continues around finance and art, how you've brought it together. And again, the advice that you've shared with us. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was a great pleasure. I'd like to remind everybody that you can go to WilmingtonTrust.com for a full roundup of our latest economic market and broader thought leadership. Thank you for joining today. Look for new episodes as well as our 2024 capital market forecast, which is coming in December. This will detail where we are seeing opportunities and how we are positioning for the year ahead. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. The opinions of any guest on the Capital Considerations podcast who are not employed by Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank are their own and do not necessarily represent those of M&T Bank Corporate or any of its affiliates. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk, and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. 
Third-party trademarks and brands are the property of their respective owners. Third parties referenced herein are independent companies and are not affiliated with M&T Bank or Wilmington Trust. Listing them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Wilmington Trust. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definition of qualified purchaser and accredited investor. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide or seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risks including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust N.A., WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, Wilmington Trust Asset Management, LLC, WTAM, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial, agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. Copyright 2023 M&T Bank and its affiliates and subsidiaries. All rights reserved.